Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good to be back with you. Um, before I get to that, how many of you uh, walked outside this morning and like, oh, that's fresh, right? After the rain we had last night, and it was just, oh, been missing that for about five weeks. Good to be back with you. Uh, Devon and I. We're down in Tennessee last weekend for a wedding. Interestingly enough, a wedding that I was not the officiant at, but that I ended up officiating at. Um, the, the dynamic was the great uncle of the bride, pastor down in Mississippi, was to officiate at the wedding. Wednesday, they had tornadoes come through the town. So he was torn, do I stay here and serve and minister and all that kind of stuff? Do I, do I go up? Do I not? What do I do? And uh, long story short, I ended up um, handling the rehearsal, and then word came that he wasn't going to be able to make it up, so officiated at the wedding. And I told my wife, I said, maybe the next time that we go to a wedding that I'm not the officiant at, I should probably bring my, like, my little black binder order of service, vows thing with me just in case, just in case something like, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, not because I officiated at it, but it was beautiful, beautiful venue, and man, the, oh gosh, the, the couple, like that's, that's how weddings, anyway, good to be back with you. Last week was Thomas, right? So we, we went out of the, uh, the initial grouping of the disciples um, of Peter, James, Andrew, John, and kind of Kevin O'Brien came in and, uh, and uh, talked about Thomas, and uh, this week we're going to get back to that initial grouping. We're going to talk about James today, and so I've titled the sermon, James, the Zeal Without Knowledge Disciple. Okay, hopefully that makes, you know, that. do you know anybody like that? Like they are just full of energy and passion about anything and everything, but they need to be reined in. Just, to, you know anybody like that? I know somebody like that, me. Let me give you an example. Uh, I've been walking, been following at Jesus for Gosh, 41 years. In my first year of walking with Jesus, I, uh, zeal, right? Without knowledge. Our church went over to, uh, in Aurora, there's a, there's a mission there, Wayside Cross, Wayside Cross Rescue Mission. And so we went over there to serve, to serve the men there uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we, we served a meal, and then we just connected with the guys very casually afterwards, just listened to their hearts and prayed with them if they needed that, that kind of thing. So um, I sat down with this young man. He was probably, I was 26, and he was probably 22, 23-ish. So sat down with him, and he had shared with me that... He was, uh, next week he was going to court, and it was entirely possible that he was looking at jail time. And so me, in my, so I hit the ground running in my Christianity, right? Zeal. But the knowledge hadn't caught up yet. 
So here's what I said, and I'm, as I share this with you, I still cringe. I still cringe at the advice that I, that I gave this dude. I said, you know what we're going to do? We are, we are going to pray right now. We're going to pray right now that you don't see jail time, that that's not going to happen, and I firmly believe that that's what's going to... So sat and prayed with them, and I said, dude, you're not going to jail. How? What? Where did I get off? Like, say, this couple, John and Donna, they had taken me under their wings for my first year. Like, they were discipling me, but they didn't call it discipleship. They just did it, right? They just did it. And so I was, like, I was on cloud nine. And we get in the car, and we're starting to drive uh, back to where my car was and all that kind of good stuff. And they asked me how my conversation, they saw I was talking to a guy, they asked me how my conversation went. I told them what I did and what I said, and it was like whiplash that both of them, took, John was driving, Donna here, I'm in the back, like, like turned around and looked at, you said what? You gave what kind of advice? And they proceeded to, as gently as they could, admonish me because I really needed, that was poor advice, man, just zeal without knowledge. I'm sure none of us besides myself fall prey to that, but I think as we walk through some passages of Scripture today, I think you'll see that James, and by extension John, we'll talk about John next week, but James was certainly a possessor of, the dude was passionate, energetic, yeah. But did he always have the knowledge, did he always have the proper assessment of the situation to go with the zeal? That's the question. So, of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, so this, this initial grouping of four disciples, right? Two sets of brothers. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Obviously, we're focusing on, on James today. But Jesus had an inner circle. He had Peter and then the two brothers, James and John. But of those three, we, we basically have the least amount of information about James. He's the least known to us. For example, he never appeared in the Gospels. He never appears as a standalone. He's always paired with his more notable brother, John, the, the, the penner of the Gospel of John, which is in interesting because James was probably the older brother. In fact, the only time we see James alone, alone, is in the book of Acts when he's beheaded, and we'll talk about that at his martyrdom. James is sometimes referred to as James the Great. If, you're, if you read in the Gospels and you come across the name James, you have to differentiate because there's like four different Jameses. Uh, he's sometimes referred to as James the Great. Differentiate, differentiate him from James the Little or James the Lesser. I'm not sure why he's called James the Lesser. James the son of Alphaeus and James the brother of Jesus. So the biblical account offers very little in the, way of, in the way of information about James character-wise, so we're left to uh, infer, kind of fill in the blanks, and that's what I'm going to try attempt to do today. 
It's entirely possible that James and John were from a somewhat influential family because you often see them referred to as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So it seems, piecing things together, that Zebedee was a, was a man of some prominence. In fact, his fishing business was to the point that he was able to hire servants. He was able to hire employees. Mark tells us that. Mark also tells us that Jesus, Jesus himself, referred to James and John as Boanerges, or the sons of thunder. That gives us some hint, some, some insight into James and John's character, like maybe they were loud, maybe they were boisterous, maybe they were the life of the party kind of a thing. It's even possible that the status of James and John's family, the status of Zebedee, was one of the reasons that when Jesus was arrested, we read in one of the Gospels in John that the high priest knew James. And so James and Peter were actually allowed into the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was being questioned, when he was on trial. And that's where we see, you know, Peter, when he denies Jesus, Jesus looks at him. That was the placement, and it's entirely plausible that because of the prominence of Zebedee, that John... So, so there's something going on with this family, with this family name. Finally, it's interesting to note that when Herod Agrippa wanted to persecute the early church after Jesus died, rose again, ascended back to the Father. So we're early in the church age. That when uh, Herod, Herod Agrippa, wanted to persecute the early church, he singles out James, and then later Peter, we'll look at it in a second, he singles out James and has him beheaded. So if we put all that together on a preliminary basis, we, we kind of have this. Given James' place in the lead grouping of the disciple listings, his part in Jesus' inner circle, and his early martyrdom, it is entirely possible to assume, now catch this, it's entirely possible to assume that James was a key leader of the disciples. In fact, maybe second only in terms of influence to Peter himself. So James is not a minor player here. He's a very significant player. So we're going to look at three passages today. I want to invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. Then we'll head to Matthew 20 and Acts 12. So Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Luke 9 51 through 56, with that background in place. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up. Reading between the lines, here's what's happening. Jesus knows that the end is near. To be taken up means to go to the cross. When the days were coming to a close for Jesus to be taken up, his public ministry was nearing an end, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So he's up north in the region of Galilee, and he has to go south to the region of Judea where Jerusalem is. He knows his time is short. He's determined 
The cross is not an afterthought for Jesus. It's a fixed point of reference for him. Verse 52, so he sends messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So I need to pause here and just, uh, for some of us, refresh our memory. For others of us, this is going to be brand new. If you were a good Jew, whatever that was, if you were a good Jew, certainly, if you were a good Jewish rabbi, and you wanted to travel from north to south or south to north, you had two options. You had a third option that really wasn't an option. You could take the eastern route uh, along the Jordan River, or you could take the western route kind of along the Mediterranean Sea. But one route you could not take was right through the heart of Israel through Samaria. You could not, should not, would not do that. And what do we see Jesus doing? Near the end of his ministry, he's leaving Galilee, face set towards Jerusalem. He has an option to the east. He has an option to the west. He doesn't take it. Do you think Jesus was just confused? Was that an afterthought? Or was it intentional? Was he still trying to teach the boys something? Because if you remember at the front end of his ministry, he's traveling from south to north. He could have taken option A, option B, he chose option C, and he goes right through the heart of Samaria. And that's what we read in John chapter 4, where he has this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Front part of his ministry, Samaria. End part of his ministry, Samaria. Is he trying to connect the dots for the boys? Did they get it? These are all fair questions. Verse 53. But the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. There's a lot that verse 53 is pregnant with meaning if you know what's going on behind the scenes. I'm going to try and unpack that in a second. When the disciples James and John saw this, that uh, Jesus was not allowed in this certain village. Nope, you guys, we know where you're going. You're going to Jerusalem. Not, not this way. You, you go this way, you go that you're not coming through this village. You're not coming through this town. So when James and John saw it, remember sons of thunder, they said, Lord, do you want us to smoke them? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Now, if you come upon this for the first time and you're unaware of the background, you're like, wait, what, were they serious? Yes, they were. They were dead serious, no pun intended. They were serious. What does Jesus do? He turns around and he rebukes them. Basically, that's not my agenda, boys. We are not doing it. Verse 56, and they went to another village. So, some background for this, and it'll give us some insight into, like, did this come out of thin air from James and John that, you know, call down fire from heaven kind of thing? It did not. There's context. <clears throat> so the Samaritans were a mixed race of people, a mixed race of Israelites from what back in the day was the northern kingdom. After, after uh, Solomon left, the kingdom was divided. After King Solomon passed from the scene, the kingdom eventually became divided. The 12 tribes, 10 to the north, 2 to the south. <coughs> Excuse me. Babe, could you bring up my water, please? 
So when Israel, when the northern ten tribes were conquered by the Assyrians, thank you, leading, leading members of the various tribes were taken into captivity into Assyria. And what the Assyrian king did was he kind of traded. He then deposited peoples, non-Jews, into the northern kingdom, okay, at, who, who were loyal to the king of Assyria. And over time, what happened was this. The Israelites who were left, who weren't taken in captivity, began to intermarry with the pagans who the king of Assyria had deposited in the land. And so by the time of Jesus, several centuries, many centuries later, you have this, this kind of mixed race of Israelites is the best way to put it. The resulting religion was this kind of meshing, this syncretism. So the Israelites who intermarried, they... Contradiction in terms, they stayed loyal to Yahweh, but they began to incorporate into their religious practices worship to the various pagan deities. So when I say they, were, they remained loyal to, uh, to Yahweh, they didn't really remain loyal to Yahweh. And we read they feared the Lord, but they also worshipped their own gods according to the practice of the nations from which they had been deported. So you have this mixed bag of worship emerging in the northern ten tribes. Now, of course, in the southern two tribes, in the tribe of Judah, well, 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 we are the pure people. We are the ones who did not sell out to the pagan deities. We did not sell out to the pagan gods. The original site uh, for the Samaritans of worship was on Mount Gerizim. Okay, northern tribe, uh, Mount Gerizim. Although it was destroyed about 125 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, it was still considered a holy place. Now here's how we know that. In John chapter 4, early in Jesus' ministry, he goes up through Samaria. He has the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. During his conversation with her, she makes this comment. Our fathers worshipped God on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim. So still in Jesus' day, and then she says, You Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. We worship here, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. So by the time of Jesus, long story, by the time of Jesus, there is significant bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. So that's kind of part A of the background for James and John's, should we call down fire from heaven? But it's not the most important part. Samaria was one of the most important cities in the northern kingdom. Samaria. Um, in the days of Elijah, major Old Testament prophet, during wicked King Ahab's major Old Testament king, during his reign, 
Samaria had become a center for a very important pagan deity, Baal. We, we typically say Baal, Baal, worship. So after Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah succeeds him. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the first two verses, we read this. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now watch this. Ahaziah, remember he's the, the son of, of, of Ahab, succeeds him. He's now king of the northern tribes. Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of his upstairs room in Samaria and was injured. So what does he do? He sends messengers instructing them, go inquire of Baal Zebub. Does that name ring a bell? Any queen fans? Okay. Go inquire of Baalzebub, one of the false major pagan deities, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this injury. Baalzebub was a Philistine deity whose name, interestingly enough, meant Lord of the Flies. The land of Philistia was ravaged by flies. So what the Philistines deduced was, well, the god or the Lord of the flies must be here, and his name is Baalzebub, the Lord of the flies. That idea, that concept, and that name was so repugnant to Jews that they actually tweaked the name, and they changed the name from Baalzebub to... Anybody? Beelzebul. So they changed the name from Lord of the Flies, and this is how repugnant it was for them, to the Lord of Dung. And they had a stronger name for it. That's, I'm not going to say. Okay, so you get the idea, right? It was totally, this concept, totally repugnant to the Jews. We get a hint of this in Jesus' conversation with the demons, when he's healing people left and right, he's a threat to the power structure of the Pharisees. And they said, you are casting out demons by Beelzebul, the Lord of the demons. So there's a history here. So the Lord sends Elijah to intercept the messengers that Ahaziah said, go inquire of Beelzebub. Am I going to get up from this bed? Am I going to live? What's going to happen? So the Lord says, go intercept the messengers and send them back to Ahaziah and tell them, you will not get up from your bed. Since you have done this wicked thing, since you have not tried to inquire of me, since you have sought counsel from Baalzebub, you will die on your, in your bed. You will never get up. So the messengers go back and tell this to Ahaziah. Ahaziah is torqued off royally, pun intended. He is so upset that he said, talk about overkill. He sends 51 men. He sends a captain of 50 and 50 men to go and grab um, Elijah and bring him to Ahaziah. So, here's where it all ties in. Long way, I had to get there. So they go, and they go to, like, here's why we're here. You're coming back with us, dude. And Elijah says, I kind of think not. 
And what does Elijah do? He calls down fire from heaven, and the 51 soldiers are toast. Word gets back somehow to Ahaziah. He's not done. He sends another contingent of 50 men with the same result. Ahaziah is a slow learner. He does this a third time. 50 more soldiers, but the leader of this pact kind of gets it, like, right? So he goes in humility before Elijah, bows before him, kneels before him, begs him, please, please, please come back with me and have this conversation with Ahaziah. So Elijah agrees. He agrees. That's what I'll do. Elijah meets with Ahaziah, and he tells them what the Lord has decreed. Ahaziah, you, because you have done this wicked thing, you will not get up from this bed. And Ahaziah dies, just like Elijah said, dies in his bed. All of that, several hundred years earlier, took place in the same region of Samaria, that Jesus, James, and John, and the rest of the boys are now traveling through. And James and John were surely aware of that story. So what do they do? They read a story in their scriptures and say, Aha! Same situation, applicable to us. Lord, do you want us to call down fire? However, while calling down fire from heaven was proper for Elijah to do, it was not proper for James and John. Why not? That's the question, right? Why not? Why did Jesus turn and rebuke them? What's up with that? I'm going to suggest two reasons. Reason number one. James and John were willing to do what Jesus was not. Hear that well. James and John were willing to do what Jesus was not willing to do. And here's why. Jesus, so important we get this. Jesus' mission at his first coming, at his first advent. Samantha, I'm so encouraged by the Ephesians passage that you read earlier where it talks about, but, mm, but God, who is rich in mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy. At his first coming, Jesus brought with him this richness of mercy at his first advent. For example, we read in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to bring judgment on the lost. Is that what it says? Clearly that's not what it says. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So important we grasp this. John 12, I have, Jesus' words, I have come, all, all three of these passages, these are words spoken from the very mouth of Jesus. I have come as a light into the world 
so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Let me qualify this. That's Jesus' first advent. That's Jesus' first coming. Scripture tells us He's coming again. When He comes the next time, it will be judgment. If we're honest with ourselves, let me ask you a question. If God had this conversation with you and said, Bill, all you have to do, Bill, is snap your fingers. And at midnight tonight, I will bring my judgment full force on the world, and I will wipe out all sin and all evil. If God made that offer to you, would you take him up on it? Would you? Don't get me wrong. We, we cry out, we yearn for justice, don't we? Why? Because we know things aren't as they're supposed to be. We know this world is unfair. And part of the problem is us, if we're being honest with ourselves. I would not take that challenge. Why? Because I have too many friends and too many family members who are far from God. And if God at midnight tonight brought His complete and full and deserved judgment, where would that leave them? You see, we cry out for justice, and I get it, rightly so. But what we really want right now is mercy. I want God to extend mercy to my loved ones. That's, and that, before Jesus returns, that is what is being offered to the world. Right now, it's mercy. But God is long-suffering, right? But He will not allow evil to go on unchecked forever. There will come a time when the sun returns, and that is judgment. But right now, you see the passages, Jesus' own words. Right now, what is he offering? He's offering mercy. And I have a question here. How did James and John miss this spirit of Jesus' teaching? At this point, they've been with him for three solid years. How did they miss it to the point where they're bumped, right? We're going through Samaria again, really? And they're bumped. And what spills out of them? Judgment. Boom, judgment. Question. When you're bumped, when somebody acts in a way that's not favorable to you, that doesn't accomplish your purposes, what spills out? What spills over? 
Judgment? Smoke them, Lord? Bring fire? I think that's a fair question. That's the first reason that it wasn't proper for James and John. Here's the second reason. James and John, and the other disciples by extension, they seem to possess an air of superiority, an air of we are better than you mindset over, over the Samaritans. But did they, like have they learned nothing from Jesus' ministry? Did they learn nothing from the earlier encounter a few years earlier in John chapter 4 with the Samaritans? Did they learn, have they learned nothing? Not too long ago, my wife and I were invited to a friend's house. There's other people there. It was a gathering. And there was a couple there at this gathering. Uh, presented themselves as a, as a married couple. The husband in this, in this relationship is a biological female who has transitioned medically and like fully transitioned medically, surgically, and hormonally to a male. Interesting dynamic. As over the course of the evening, my wife and I engaged in conversation with them. I knew the background. What would you have done? You're bumped. Jesus has told you. I'm sending you through Samaria. You're bumped. What is your default? What immediately spills over from you? It's a fair question, guys. It's a fair question. During the course of the evening, my wife and I and others there had opportunities to just show this couple, oh, by the way, there's also a child involved. They also have a daughter. Just to show this couple Fellow image bearers, don't lose sight of that. Fellow image bearers, just what good, legit, honest, wholesome friendship looks like. I personally had the opportunity to have a, a couple of sidebar conversations about the Lord with the, the man, the biological female, who is now the husband in the relationship, seemed genuinely interested to the point where, mm, when they were getting ready to leave, they said, 
in a way that came across as incredibly sincere and kind. We hope to see you again soon. When you're bumped and Jesus says, we are going through Samaria, what most easily, what most readily spills over from you? Dear friends, this is just, take it for what it's worth. I am concerned. I am concerned that we as Christians are more influenced by our political leanings than by the gospel of Jesus Christ when it comes to situations like this. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't experienced this, you will. It's coming to a neighbor near you. It's coming to a family member near you. Fellow image bearers, will your first reaction be to call down fire from heaven? Will your first reaction be judgment? Or will it be mercy to speak the truth, yes, the truth, but to speak the truth in love? Will your first reaction be judgment? Will it be to seek and to save that which is lost? Next passage, Matthew 20. For James and John, what spilled out of them was judgment. Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. This is a little bit later now in Jesus' ministry. Just, he's now in, in, in Judea, near Jerusalem. This is right before the triumphal entry. This is what we call Passion Week leading up to Easter. Matthew 20, starting at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? Jesus asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, and the other on your left in your kingdom. Verse 22, Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able? Now the you there is pointed to James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The cup of what? The cup of death, the cup of suffering. We are able, they said to him. Verse 23, Jesus told them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now check out the reaction of the other ten. This is golden. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Context. Over three years now, these twelve and Jesus have been doing life together. And they still can't work their stuff out. Right? They are torqued off. They are so, how dare you? Jesus called them over, all 12. We're about to have a meeting, boys, and I'm going to do the talking. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, I wonder how many times Jesus had this conversation with them, by the way. This was not just a one-off conversation. This was not just a one-off, okay, this was... I've been working with you and working with you and working with you and working with you. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles loaded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Putting a couple of passages together, we find out, we know, that the mother of James and John was none other than Salome. Salome was in that group of women who were well-to-do, and they actually supported, in a significant way, Jesus' ministry. I think this ask by Salome and James and John was prompted by something Jesus said just a little bit earlier in Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What are they hearing? They're hearing authority. They're hearing glory. They're hearing power. Not to diminish any of that, because for followers of Jesus, stuff like that is promised on the other side of this life. But reading between the lines, in Jesus' reply to James and John, he reminds them, and I remind all of us, that in Jesus' paradigm of the kingdom, the way to glory is through suffering. It's the same paradigm that Jesus modeled for us. Suffering is the prerequisite for glory in the kingdom. However, James and John and the other ten obviously did not connect the dots because just a few days later, they're in the upper room and they're jockeying for position. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, they asked Jesus. They didn't get it. Who should be considered the greatest? The third and final passage. Move over a couple of books to Acts chapter 12. Very short passage. Acts chapter 12. This is where James is beheaded. 12.1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword, had him beheaded. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, this King Herod is Herod Agrippa, not Antipas, who had John the baptizer killed. He, this King Herod, is actually the grandson of King Herod the Great. It is significant for our purposes in this character study that James was the first of the apostles to be killed. It's likely that Agrippa had him put to death to snuff out this growing threat to peace in the, in, the, in the realm, right? Growing threat to the Jews, growing threat to the, to the, to the, to the Romans. What? What threat is this? People, followers of Jesus. People of the way. They were beginning to unsettle culture. What a concept for Jesus' people. To bring an unsettledness to culture. Note the connection Agrippa makes between James and Peter. All right, I want to just wrap this up somehow, some way. So 
just food for thought for all of us, just four observations, four pieces of food for thought, four applications, however you want to phrase that. Number one, James had much to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Just like us. James had much to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Just like us. Second, James wanted judgment. Jesus gave him mercy. Third, James wanted authority. Jesus gave him servanthood. Fourth, James wanted glory. Jesus gave him suffering. Now, if we look at that, it seems... A bit upside down. It seems upside down because it is upside down. That is so stinking countercultural. But that is the way of the kingdom. Jesus' way of the kingdom up is down and down is up. He came to turn things upside down only for us to realize that he's actually putting things right side up. I'd like to reference a point I made a couple weeks ago in the sermon on Andrew regarding what I called then a hermeneutical caution. I said that a challenge a couple weeks ago with character studies is that if we're not careful, we'll just scratch the surface of the fuller meaning intended by the author in a particular text or a particular book. And in so doing, we may miss the author's overall intended uh, purpose, his main point. What is he after? In other words, the bigger picture. For example, in Luke's narrative, the author of the book of Acts, In Luke's narrative in Acts 12, notice what happens immediately after James' execution. Verses 4 through 5, Peter is put in prison and is awaiting trial. 6 through 10, Peter is miraculously freed. 11 through 17, not only is Peter astonished at his escape, but he goes to 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 the prayer apartment, to the prayer house, where people are praying for his release, and he shows up, and a girl named Rhoda answers the door. She's freaked out. She goes in and tells everybody else, uh, uh, Peter is standing at the door, and they don't believe him. They've been praying for his release. He's released. They don't believe their prayers were heard. Verses 18 and 19, Herod finds out about Peter's escape, has the guards who were responsible for Peter's custody, has them executed. Verses 22 through 23, God then has Herod executed. And here it is. Verse 24 through verse 3 of chapter 13. Gospel progress continues as the shift begins to focus from the gospel going to the Jews to the gospel going to the Gentiles. It is so not about James, I think there's value, guys, in these character studies 
as far as it goes. I think there's value. I think we can learn some things through the narratives for sure. But this brief report of James's execution serves to usher in why Peter was arrested and his ensuing departure to another place. We only hear from Peter one more time in the book of Acts. And he's gone. He's gone from the scene. With the narrative shifting to Paul's missionary efforts to the Gentiles. For Luke, James' death marks a decisive moment of transition in his narrative. Think about this. I'm almost done. The apostles are only included in the narrative insofar as they advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. Luke sets it up for us. Here's what's happening. I'm telling you on the front end, here's the setting. The gospel is going to be taken to the ends of the earth. And the apostles are included in Luke's narrative insofar as they are accomplishing that goal. Dear child of God, and so it is with us, we too are included in the narrative to the end of bringing the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that the kingdom is here already, seeking and saving those who are lost in our spheres of influence. And I leave you with this thought. We would do well, brothers and sisters, to remember that the next time Jesus says, we are going through Samaria and we are tempted in our misguided zeal, just like James, and we are tempted to call down judgment when Jesus' agenda is I want to extend mercy through you.